Tim Keller once said or often said, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. We are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. Today we're continuing our study of 1 Corinthians but taking a break from chapter 15 to focus on the letter as a whole and by surveying the common problems that Paul identifies in the Corinthian church and also looking carefully at his remedy, I pray that God will fill us with renewed faith in the greatness of his love for us. That as we look at one vivid picture in particular, depicted in Exodus and again in 1 Corinthians, that it might become for us a guiding light. It's so easy for us to lose our way. And God, by his grace, has provided a very bright light for us to illuminate ways that we wander, but also, more importantly, to bring us home and to draw us back to himself. To this end, we'll consider a few things. We're first going to look briefly at Exodus um, so that we can understand what Paul is saying when he identifies Christians as the temple, which we heard read just a moment ago. And then we'll quickly look at some of Paul's sayings in 1 Corinthians. Maybe there's a thread that connects the frailties of God's people throughout the ages, from the time of Moses and the tabernacle in the wilderness, to the early church, and particularly the the early church in Corinth, to where we are today. And then finally, we'll look at the two verses that we heard read in 1 Corinthians more closely and consider their impact. So let's consider the tabernacle quickly. The book of Exodus is 40 chapters long. And when we think of the book of Exodus, maybe these um, really memorable stories that captured our imagination, some of us from childhood, come into our minds. There's the burning bush. There are the 10 plagues that happen. There's the Passover that's, um, that's instituted and celebrated. And then maybe most dramatically, there's the, 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 the parting of the Red Sea as God delivers his people out of Egypt and to himself for the sake of the world. All those amazing acts of God, those powerful acts are packed into eight thrilling chapters of riveting narrative. Uh, that's not very much space for a chapter that's a book that's 40 chapters long, right? And, and it's really interesting. We might maybe think of instructions for the tabernacle when we think of the book of Exodus, but it's not nearly as exciting. In fact, it, it could be some place where a lot of pray through the Bible in a year plans, they go to die. Um, he, he, in chapter 25, the narrative slows to a crawl, and Moses spends six chapters describing specifically how the tabernacle is to be constructed. And then again in chapter 35, he does the same thing, six more chapters, repeating some of what he said before, embellishing on it, making further clarifications. So all those amazing things that God does when he reveals his holy arm to Israel and to the world in Exodus, they're all in eight chapters. And by contrast, we get 12 chapters talking about specific um, scroll work that's to go on a lampstand or the position of this furniture or you know, all these details that go into the architecture of God's temple. 
So the actual nerve center, I think what we can learn from the proportionality of how Exodus is, how God spends his time talking through the book of Exodus, the, the amount of time that God spends on these different kinds of things, that the actual nerve center of Yahweh's faithful presence, the tabernacle, the nerve center of God's presence with his people and in the world must be very important to him. So let's spend a little time reflecting on a few aspects of the temple that make it so important. First, we know from um, the, the Pentateuch that the position of the tabernacle was very important. The, the, the tabernacle wasn't constructed just kind of in like, hey, put it anywhere, wherever you can find room or some shade. It was very specifically um, instituted by God that the tabernacle was to be the very center of the Israelite encampment, such that the, temp, the tabernacle was in the middle and all the different tribes, like spokes on a wagon wheel, fanned out from the tabernacle. So if you, if you had kind of a, a, a bird's eye view of the nation of Israel as they went through the wilderness, that's what it would look like. God was in the center of his people, not somewhere off on the periphery. So in that way, we see the tabernacle as important, its position. But the tabernacle was also the place of God's peace. So at every worship service, the priests were commanded to bless God's people. You see, God insisted that his name, Yahweh, be put on his people in a very specific way. Every time they come here, for whatever reason, for whatever feast, with whatever sacrifices, with whatever confession or uh, purification rite, or whatever was happening, every time my people come here, God insists of Aaron and his sons and all that would come after them, as you stand as a priest on my behalf, put my name on my people with these specific words. And so every time the people would come. Before they would leave, they would see a priest standing with his hands extended to them and saying these words, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Every time they went. So the tabernacle was important because it was the place where God would renew his peace with his people where he would renew not just a forensic, okay, your sins are covered for a minute and I'll see you again next week, but that they would hear these words that God crafted so that they would have in their bodies and in their consciousness a sense that God delights in me. God is to lift up his countenance upon me and give me peace. The tabernacle was also the throne of blessing for the whole world. So it was in the middle of the camp. It was this place of constant renewal of peace, maybe the way that we might think of the throne of grace now from the book of Hebrews. But it was also a place not just for the, uh, it wasn't just a family secret, it was for the whole world. Um, we hear from God's first conversation with Abraham. Go from your country and to your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make, you a great, make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How does that relate to Israel and how does that relate to the tabernacle in particular, which is the center of um, the Jewish 
uh, of Jerusalem and, and then of, 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 of the nation of Israel as they were in the desert. We see this explained more in Isaiah chapter 55, where Isaiah, or God says, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. So the tabernacle was important. The temple was important as a fixture. It was this, the construction of it took 12 chapters to explain. It's the place that's in the very middle of God's people. It's the very place where God constantly renews his peace with his people. And it's the, and it's the, and it's the throne of God's blessing where he's drawing strangers and even enemies to himself to be healed. So hands down, God's temple was the most special place in the world. God's temple was the most special place in the entire world. We might think, if you're young, you might think, that being near the tabernacle all the time would keep people filled with joy and wonder. Maybe like how we might have thought from time to time, if I could have been one of the early disciples or one of the apostles, then I would really love Jesus and I wouldn't, I wouldn't wander off anymore, right? Um, but we see from history that we're all the same. We all wander. We all get lonely. We all suffer grief. We all get distracted we're all numbed by cultural norms that draw us into bad habits that produce calluses in our hearts and in our behaviors where we justify certain things because they're normal as we look around. We all find ways to put God on the periphery or, or even since he can't be moved, to put ourselves on the periphery. Okay, my camp kind of funnels into Yahweh, but... I look around this room and think of people whose tent would be a lot closer to the tabernacle. I'm like way back there and the nose bleeds. They struggled with pride and insecurity and fear just like, just like we do. And so just because the tabernacle was there with the pillar of fire over it by night and the pillar of cloud over it by day and billowing with the glory of God, it, it didn't keep God's people perfectly faithful to him. And so God, in his faithfulness, doesn't leave it there. He keeps sending these prophets. Every generation gets a prophet. I think if, if you try to understand how do the prophets function in the Old Testament, and then later, how do the epistles, how do the letters that the apostles wrote, how do they function? I like to think of them as lighthouses, right, where where. Out of ignorance, because this is all new and we don't really know what we're doing in the case of Corinth, the early church, they'd heard a rudimentary explanation of the gospel and they'd believed it, but they didn't know a lot of details about it. Um, or God's people here in, uh, in Israel, this is a newly formed group of people that just came out of slavery and they haven't heard a word from Yahweh in 400 years. They're more Egyptian than anything else. And yet God, through his faithfulness, is calling them out and trying to mark them as his own and giving them an identity that centers around him, not whatever God that their, their kids were learning about in public school in Egypt and, and what they grew up learning about. So God is, this is all new. And so whereas people can see God now and, and understand something of him, God keeps sending his prophets 
Like lighthouses that illuminate a treacherous, rocky coastline and illuminate the hazards that we all so easily can drift into. And more importantly, the prophets always illuminate the harbor. It's not just like, don't do this. The prophets, I think, are not moralistic in the end. Certainly, they give practical instruction. Certainly, there's a lot of practical instruction in 1 Corinthians. Hey, stop doing this. (laughs) Hey, start doing this instead. That exists. But I think that it's ham-fisted to reduce the prophets or to reduce the New Testament or to reduce Christianity as a religion into some moralistic um, trail of crumbs or paint by numbers. At the heart of all the prophets is this refrain that's echoed throughout that conveys the heart of God, and it's this. Return to me. Return to me. Return to me. Through all the words of the prophets, that's the thread that ties them all together. Is this heart of a father, the heart of a bridegroom, who's leaning toward a wandering Israel and saying, won't you come back? Won't you come back to the table? Won't you come back and receive my peace? Won't you come back and receive and and be renewed in the identity that I have laid myself down to give you? So the prophets and the New Testament apostles, they function as these lighthouses, which if you think of it is just such a great picture of grace, showing us the way of danger so that we can be safe, but also calling us home. This is where the harbor is. This is where safety and still water are. So what's going on in Corinth that prompts Paul to write this letter? We're going to come back in just a moment to the tabernacle for something really important about it. But first, let's, let's find our way in Corinth so that we can kind of work our way into how these two things go together. How does the tabernacle fit with what Paul is saying in Corinth? So what's going on that prompts Paul to write this letter? There were a lot of things that were going wrong. Symptomatically, if you were just diagnosing, you go through and you see almost like a laundry list or a punch list for a builder. Um, Paul wants to address divisions in the church. And some are saying, I follow Paul and I follow Cephas and I follow Apollos. There's tolerance of open sexual immorality and there's participation in sexual immorality. Certainly Paul wants to address this. The ways that, that the young church in Corinth, maybe like Israel or, or maybe like us today, was being more and more eroded and defined by cultural norms than by what God has called them to. There was self, selfishness in marriage There was a selfish neglect of one another's conscience when it came to um, negotiable matters like food sacrifice to idols. So people were more concerned with their rights and their ability to express themselves freely as someone who'd been enlightened than they were about the preferences and sensitivities of their brothers and sisters who they were inviting over for dinner or who they were sharing a meal with. There was also selfish in corporate worship in a few different ways. There was selfishness in, in the way that some were wearing disrespectful attire, attire that wasn't fitting for their context. They were neglecting the poor at the Lord's Supper. 
They were prideful and kind of swaggering in the gifts of the spirit that they had received. So there was this kind of comparison on one hand. And also some of them were just kind of puffed up. Like my gift is better than yours and I'm going to use my gift publicly because it's my gift to use. And I'm just going to use it regardless of whether it's blessing anybody. It it blesses me to have you know that I have this gift. Um, And so there was some prideful selfishness in the way in the way they were using spiritual gifts in chapters 11 through 14 so this is kind of an overview of what's going on in first corinthians and and why paul as a master builder and as an apostle and as a shepherd under christ sees fit to erect a series of lighthouses along this coastline where we can see all these different ways that uh, a church could get shipwrecked and capsize The Corinthians were neglecting at heart to see, as Keller says, how loved and accepted they are in Jesus Christ. That's primarily where Paul uses his most beautiful, vivid language. He's not ashamed or he's not um, reluctant to directly address some of these ethical issues, but that's not where he really sings. Where the book of 1 Corinthians explodes with color and light and beauty is in how, how he gets underneath to the heart and appeals to their identity. That God has not abandoned you. You're not alone. If God had abandoned you and you were alone, then, then it would make sense that you would, in a nihilistic way, think, well, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Or if, if God had left you alone, if he had set you free to just explore self-expression, if that's what the gospel does, if that's all that the gospel does, then it would make sense that you're scavenging around for what you can get out of this life and what you can get out of other people. But Paul doesn't spend a bunch of time berating them for this. Instead, Paul says things that are so beautiful that get down underneath it all and heal at the core, at the heart of where they're starving. He helps them to dare to hope that they are loved and accepted by God in ways that they have not yet comprehended. Before we get to, um, before we get to the tabernacle again, let's consider just a few of these things that, that Paul says. These all are in 1 Corinthians. There's a lot of music in 1 Corinthians, God's music, to bring his people home. First of all, Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. We need to talk about some stuff, but I'm not mad, and I'm not trying to hate on you. I love you, and so I'm going to take my time to write these things to you. That's how he frames the whole book. He conveys to them that God sees you when he says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord sees you. And, and, and as he sees you, he wants to give you these two things, grace and peace. He conveys to them that Jesus sustains them. He says, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom all things uh, and for from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. 
to people who were exhibiting all this selfishness, for, for, for Paul to be able to get into the heart of it, that you think you exist for yourself, maybe. Maybe you think you just exist through yourself. And so if that's true, then yeah, go around scavenging around for pleasure or self-expression. But what if, what if you exist through Christ? God calls you his own and he cherishes you, cherishes you. He says he calls us sanctified in Christ Jesus. He calls us um, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. He says you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Like he's equating the unity that Christ has with the Father with the unity that Christ has with you according to the high priestly prayer in John. He says that Christ bound you to himself. Because of God, you are in Christ. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You think of your body that way? That your body is an extension of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ isn't here anymore. He's ascended, as we're celebrating today. He sent his spirit. And now on this earth, he, he has made you a member of his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You're part of that. You, specifically, are part of that. Paul is elevating these people out of a ditch, out of muck. Not with scolding, but with this beautiful music. And all this is possible because he came knowing nothing but Christ crucified. And he says later, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And, and therefore, we in Christ are brought up into all of these beautiful realities. Paul says two other things that are very similar, and that's where we're going to focus our time. That's where we're going to conclude. But before we get to those two things, let's go back to the tabernacle just for a moment. We remember that hands down, God's temple was the most special place in the world. And we thought about it from those three different um, perspectives, the location of it in the middle, and that it's this place of constant peace flowing from Yahweh to his people through these specific words that he ordained to be spoken over them, by which he would seal his name to his people every time they encountered him. And it was also this throne where the king um, draws and welcomes and attracts um, strangers and even enemies all over the world to be healed. But listen to one, one more thing about the temple. It's, it's how all these 12 chapters around the tabernacle conclude. This is the climax of those chapters. And if you've got your Bible, it's the very last paragraph in Exodus. It's the very last paragraph in chapter 40. <clears throat> then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses, who, by the way, had been okay barefoot at the burning bush, like he'd been close to God before and had a conversation with him. So, so the same person. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Hands down, God's temple was the most special place in the world. The temple of God was so overwhelmed by the glory of God. 
all the glory of the creator God, all the PSI of that glory, so to speak, funnels down into this one little tent and overwhelms it with such weight and gravity and beauty and majesty that Moses doesn't even dare to hope to go near it. There's no taking your shoes off and going in for a conversation. God's temple is the earthly container for the overwhelming glory of God. It can barely contain the glory of God. It doesn't contain it. It's bursting at the seams with glory. It was so heavy with God's presence that Moses stands off and doesn't go in. It's too overwhelming. The actual nerve center of God's faithful presence in the world, of God's actual presence in the world, the nerve center of that is so very important to him. All these chapters, all this glory. Now listen to what Paul says to you twice. To this frail wandering, distracted church, carrying so much grief fresh from Egypt, so much trauma. Listen to what he says to this church. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. Chapter 3, verse 16. And again in chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? What? He, he couldn't pull any word, I think, to describe you in your relationship with God and God's relationship with you that would be stronger. I hope, as we said in the beginning, that this vivid picture that God gives you in his word, this bright lighthouse, these twin lighthouses in chapter 3 and chapter 6 that illuminate this harbor, that define your identity as the temple of Yahweh, that they remind you, that they illuminate you, that they cause to diminish all these other attractive things that may or may not lurk in those rocky coastlines and draw you home to this place where God has made you a locus of his peace, that you would always know it, no matter what's going on. Man, it stuff's always going on. But whatever's going on, this thing is true. And it's not just a family secret. It's not just for your quiet time or your commute or your whatever. That just as the temple in the Old Testament was this leverage point for the king of glory to draw strangers and even enemies to himself for healing, that's the power that resides in you. That's the fragrance of Christ and the power of Christ and the heart of Christ that resides in you. 
that rather than being concerned about if we're gifted or not or how much so or whatever, that we would show up to small group and that we would show up here not concerned with how we're going to be blessed by someone else's gift. And we have so many here. But that we would come preoccupied with, Lord, help me to be a blessing to my brothers and sisters who also are the temple of the Holy Spirit. What holy ground we stand on and, and, and what holy ground we, we mingle around as we eat bagels and, t- and drink coffee together that we would come seeking to be a channel of this Yahweh who, whose heart is to always be calling people to return to him and to bless them and to heal them. You are the actual nerve center of his faithful presence and you're very important to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.